Dan, Dan Elmendorf and I have a little joke around the concept of time, around the concept of time. We used to talk about it. We used to work together at IBM. And in talking about it, we realized that we really couldn't get anywhere. We couldn't say much. And we always ended, usually with Dan, saying, time, it's very profound. <laughs> About which I used to always kid him, mock him, really. But we were friends. I was like, that's all you got? That's it? Time, it's very profound? And he would double down. He would say, oh, it's very profound. <laughs> that was the sum of our reflections, the summit of our wisdom. Time, it's very very profound. That's what you do when you're not sure, right? Kind of stroke your beard. Oh, it's, it's profound. But we were not discouraged and we're not discouraged. You know why? Because we're in good company. Right? No less a genius than St. Augustine famously said, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. I'm great until someone te- you know, just asks me a question about it. So this much we can say. For us creatures, even for redeemed creatures, in this fallen world, time is a problem for us. Beyond the fact that there's something impenetrable, about it, right? The whole book of Ecclesiastes testifies to the fact that it's something of a problem. I don't know if Dan remembers, but he used to also say to me, it's just one thing after another. (laughs) Which, I mean, I I used to say, well, what's the option? Can everything happen at the same time? (laughs) What, What are the options here? Yeah, of course, it's just, you know, on the one hand, it's completely uninteresting. But it's a way of saying, right? It's another way of saying we can't control the order and the sequencing of things, right? We don't have any control over the when of things. Things are not consulting us about when they happen. So time frustrates us. We have regrets in the past, things we can't redo or correct. We're distracted in the present if there even is such a thing as the present. Whatever the present is, it's a vaporizing thing. We can't grasp it. It eludes us. Go ahead, direct your attention to the present. Boom, it's gone. Like we worry and we project our cares out into a future which doesn't exist. Time is a problem for us. I was just on vacation, right? You set your GPS, says you're going to be there in seven hours and 52 minutes. And you have to add two hours because you know time is a problem for you. There's going to be weather and there's going to be construction. There's going to be all these, at our age, there's going to be a lot of stops. (laughs) Then the line at the Chick-fil-A is going to be too long. You get there two and a half or three hours late. Time's always a problem. Sometimes it's a minor problem. It's not a big deal, but it's always problematic for us. We find that time moves 
too fast. Time flies, we say. Life vanishes. You blink your eyes, then you're my age. Your kids are all grown. You wonder how that happened. Where did the time go, we say? As if it, like, traveled somewhere. We always have to mix spatial metaphors with time because time is a problem for us. Where did the time go? Or else we say time moves too slow. It crawls, we say, or it stopped, or the day drags, or I was stuck in traffic forever, or this sermon is interminable. <laughs> right? we, we, we have too much time. What is that? People say, I have too much. We, so we have to deal with the fact that we have like an abundance of time, and so what do we say? We say, I have to kill some time. But of course, the thing is, Here's the irony. Time is killing you. (laughs) It's killing us. I like to say that's a murderous, lethal sun up there. But it's tricky. I mean, it's not without its gifts, right? While it's helping your vitamin D levels, it's literally grinding you to dust and bones. And these are simply universally known realities. As one of our texts, Psalm 90, puts it, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. There's nobody's life verse right there. You know what I love about God? Turns us all back to dust. You say, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day, a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep, you sweep people away in the sleep of death, the psalmist says. They're like new grass that in the morning. Or in the morning it springs up new. By evening, boom, it's dry and withered. Time, while it is a gift, it is a gift to us, it is also something of a cage for us. We can't get out, and we will be swept away by it, returned to dust like grass, like fading flowers. But, but notice in Psalm 90, these well-known words, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Time, it turns out, is not a problem for the eternal God. One of my favorite prayers in that collect Puritan collection of prayers known as the Valley of Vision starts like this. Thou great I am, fill my mind with elevation and grandeur at the thought of a being with whom one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. A mighty God who amidst the lapse of worlds and the revolutions of empires feels no variableness, but is glorious in immortality. Time is not a problem for the eternal God, and that is what we will look at this morning. We'll make the three points that are there in your bulletin. Eternal God, eternal redemption, and eternal perspective. So first then, the eternal God. You might... Recall the Westminster Shorter Catechism question on God, which we've referred to a couple of times already. What is God? And the answer is, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. 
eternal and unchangeable in his various attributes. So God's eternality is another kind of meta-attribute. All the attributes imply all the other attributes, but we conceive of certain attributes as having a kind of priority. So here we mean that all that God is, all that God is, is eternal. So his love is eternal. And his glory is eternal. And his goodness, his knowledge, his mercy is eternal. His dominion is eternal. Stephen Charnock says, without eternity, what are all his other perfections but glorious yet withering flowers? Right? They would, he, he goes on to say they would be just a great decaying beauty. Right? Every perfection of God, he continues, would be an imperfection if it were not always a perfection. I love that line. Every perfection of God would be an imperfection if it were not always a perfection. Right? Without eternality, nothing in God would be a perfection. So what do we mean then when we say God is eternal? Well, I mean, it turns out we will have to say a few things related to time. And let me tell you, time is very profound. So, at its most basic, the idea is this. God transcends time, even as he transcends space. He's not in time. He's not constrained by time. Time is a creature. This is critical to grasp. And God is the creator. So, time does not in any fundamental way apply to God. He is infinitely above time. This is what Moses is getting at in Psalm 90 when he says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Or even shorter, he says, or even like a watch in the night. He's not making a mathematical remark. It's not as if 2,000 years would be like two days. That would be the wrong point to draw from the text. Well, if a thousand years is one day, then 2,000 years must be like two days. That's not the point here. One of the reasons we know that's not the point is Peter expands on this psalm in in the 2 Peter 3, the New Testament lesson that we heard read. And he says, for the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. Get this, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. Hmm. That's very profound. So, a long period of time, a very long period of time, is like a very short period of time, Peter says. And a very short period of time is also like a very long period of time. Right? Taken literally, that would be absurd. But it's a poetic way of saying that temporality is irrelevant to God and to his purposes. You can't count slowness, Peter says, as some humans count slowness when you're dealing with God. You're not playing on the same field. God is not a member of the set of beings that are constrained by some higher reality called time. God, the text affirms, does not have the issues with time that we have. You know, the issues of of too fast or too slow or too much. None of this applies because God transcends time. 
So a number of things follow from this, important things. First, eternity means there's no succession of moments in God. You will find modern theologians disputing this, but this is the classical position of the church in its dominant uh, view for 1,900 years. Just as there is no beginning or end in God, he is the Alpha and the Omega. Just as there is no beginning or end in God, there is no middle in God. There's no movement to and fro in God. There's no linear progression of time which marks us creatures. God does not get older. He experienced none of the changes with, associated with created time. None of them. He has, if you will, duration. He is the great I am. He endures. He endures. But he has no temporal succession. It is not just one thing after the, another for God. He lives in what the church has called the eternal now. If you heard the hymn we sang, uh, the Psalm 102 hymn, Great God, How Infinite Thou Art, it said, For thee there's nothing old, new, to thee there's nothing old, or vice versa. Right? You might have caught that line in there. That's an expression of the historical position. There's nothing old to God, there's nothing new to God. He knows and he sees all things in one eternal, instantaneous action. God does not need to consult the world to know things. He needs to consult his own being. He's not looking forward to next Tuesday or even to the end of the world. To him, all things, including the future, are immediately present. For him, there is no past or future. God watches the whole baseball game at once. He sees the first inning and the ninth inning simultaneously without conflating the ninth inning and the first inning. It's this which makes him the God who sees and knows and can declare the end from the beginning. This might, again, sound strange to some. I'm not sure. But it is the classical position. Here's Boethius. Boethius is a 5th century Philosopher, he wrote a book in prison, no less, called The Consolation of Philosophy. He puts it this way. He says, God's eternity is the whole, simultaneous, perfect possession of his boundless life. Everything God has, he has whole, he has simultaneous. So that's the 5th century. If you jump ahead to the 20th century, when I was in seminary, everybody had to read, every Reformed pastor probably of a certain age had to read Louis Burkhoff, who was a Dutch Reformed systematic theologian. He has a standard work that everybody has to read, right? Here's what Burkhoff says. He's echoing Boethius. He's echoing the whole tradition. Burkhoff says, God possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. So this one is, then, in the opening words of that same Psalm 90, our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Even here, notice this. Even here, we see that we have to use temporal language. We have to use sequencing language because we're, we're, we're bound. That's the kind of creatures we are. So we try to talk about God's eternity and we find the psalmist saying something like this. From everlasting to everlasting. But from everlasting to everlasting doesn't move anywhere. 
It ends where it starts, with the one who just is the eternal God. Right? And this eternality of God, Scripture asserts in numerous places. We could quote a raft of things here, but I'm just going to give you two texts. One is Psalm 93. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Or 1 Timothy 1, where God is called the King Eternal. Or a third one would be Isaiah, where it it is said poetically of God that he inhabits eternity. And this timeless existence of God, it's attributed in the Bible to the whole Trinity. God is eternal, but more concretely, the Son is the Messiah, who is from everlasting. For example, according to Micah 5. The Son was in the beginning with God and was God. The Son is the one who says in our gospel lesson, before Abraham was, I am. That hymn that we're singing, that psalm of response from Psalm 102, that's applied, Psalm 102, to the Son in Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews chapter 1 says this, In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like clothing you will change them. They will be discarded. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Right? So the eternal Son, who remains the same, whose years never end, is contrasted here with the whole changing, perishable heavens and earth. Right? The Father's eternal, the Son's eternal, and the Spirit is called the eternal Spirit in Hebrews 9. So here's Anselm. I quoted from the 5th century and the 20th. Here's Anselm in the 11th. Right? The great theologian and monk. He prays to God. This is a prayer. People don't pray like this anymore. But this was how Anselm prayed. He says to God, Through your eternity you were, you are, and you will be. And since being past is different from being future, how does your eternity exist always as a whole? See, he sees the impenetrable mystery of God's whole eternity. And he concludes, he continues praying, you simply are existing beyond all time. You do not exist yesterday or today or tomorrow, for yesterday, today, and tomorrow are nothing other than temporal distinctions, and you are not in space and time, but all things are in you. For you are not contained by anything, but rather you contain all things. It's quite a prayer. So that's the eternal God. The second point I want to talk about is eternal redemption. Now here I just hope you can see this deep connection between the being of God and our salvation. Our salvation is eternal because God is eternal. Because salvation is nothing other than communion with the triune God and glory. That's why it's eternal. The eternal God secures a redemption which is eternal redemption. And this happens then. Because the Son, the eternal Son, who is before all things, enters time for your salvation. Right? And in his human nature, not in his divinity, but in his humanity, Jesus is subject to all the realities of time. 
He has to grow, and he has to learn, and he has to do things in sequence. He has to wait for his hour. He has to tell people that his time has not yet come. He, he wrestles, and he sweats, and he pleads with the Father about the upcoming passion. So this eternal God in the flesh of Jesus Christ and his humanity enters into our death-laden time, our crumbling time, which cannot be disentangled from entropy and decay. So one of the grand significances of the incarnation. And through the resurrection, he abolishes death. He brings life and immortality to light, and he's raised up in the new time, the time of the eschaton, the time of the resurrection, the time of the new creation. It is a grievous mistake to think of the risen Jesus as sort of just continuing in this time, only with a really fantastic new body in a fantastic new place called heaven. He's raised up in the time, the new time, The time when, for bodies like the transfigured body of our Lord, time is not a problem, but a sheer joy. There is one embodied creature for whom time is not a problem, and it's the transfigured, risen body of Jesus Christ. Everybody else that has a body is still trapped in death-laden, crumbling time. He is not. And he, because he does this in your flesh, and because he is the eternal God, he roots or secures for you an eternal redemption, eternal life. So we might say there are two kinds of eternity spoken of in Scripture. The first kind is attributed to God himself. He's the eternal God. The second kind is a kind of eternity that you participate in. You have eternal life. But it did have a beginning. It has a beginning, it has no end. That's, scripture speaks of eternity in both these senses. No beginning, no end, from everlasting to everlasting, of God's being himself, but eternal life, eternal redemption, and eternal inheritance for us in that Christ. Because at some point we begin to participate in that life of God. God calls us, Peter says, to his eternal glory in Christ. So the basic summons of Christian existence is a summons to participate in the everlasting eternality of God's own glory. So Hebrews 9 puts it this way. He enters the heavenly sanctuary, securing eternal redemption, that those who are called might receive the eternal inheritance. Eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. Because he who entered our time now lives forever and reigns forever, we too shall live and reign with him. World without end. And even now, right, even now, in the midst of this time, in the midst of our heartaches and struggles and weaknesses, we have his eternal consolation. He's given us eternal consolation and good hope by grace, Paul says. Think of that wonderful verse from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 33, it says this, The eternal God is your refuge. Everybody knows the second half of this verse. But the first half is important, right? The eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. So finally then, eternal perspective. The eternal God secures eternal redemption. And now he summons us 
to have an eternal perspective. So again, I want to challenge you. It turns out that this stuff hits, hits into our lives in a practical, concrete way, and it touches down hard sometimes. It, you, you start to talk about the being of God, and you think, well, that's not particularly practical. That seems way up there and abstract. But when you get down to what it means for us, often we find, oh, that's a little too practical. It's a little, just a little bit too practical. right? So it turns out that the eternality of God and the eternal salvation that we have in God requires a displacement in us, one which we resist ferociously. We who are oriented to history, we are time-bound, we are temporal, we are visual, we are sensory, we are linear creatures. And we are called repeatedly in the New Testament to heavenly, eschatological, eternal-mindedness. And this is problematic for us. Right? We just don't know how to do it. And note, you can't have this both ways. Right? There are no texts where we're called to add in an eternal perspective to our already temporal perspectives. We are called to dislodge temporal earthbound affections for ones that are invisible and heavenly and eternal. Well, that's the eternality of God touching down a little too close to home. Pro- prominent here, you could do this a lot of ways, but I'm going to just do it by looking at two texts. The first one is 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says this. Though our outer self is wasting away. Why is our outer self wasting away? I mean, aren't we redeemed already? Our outer self is wasted away because it's still trapped in this crumbling time. Paul thinks your inner being's being renewed by the Spirit. But he's not naive. He knows you're going to die and that you are dying. So he says, though your outer self is wasting away, your inner being's being renewed day by day. He goes on and says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We're called to eternal glory and our afflictions and sufferings produce eternal glory. As Paul says... We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why do we look to the things that are unseen and not the things that are seen? Well, he goes on and says, for the things that are seen are transient. I mean, these are sweeping statements. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. Notice how stark, how otherworldly, how unlike our actual condition. We look not to the things that are seen, which of course does not mean I can't see you, or that we don't see the stop sign, or we don't attend to the things that are in front of us that we have to do. But by look to, Paul means our affections, our yearning, our desire. We're always seeing through the world to the invisible world, through the temporal to the eternal. That's what we're supposed to be about, Paul says. It's really kind of shocking if you can see it, then, you ha- then it's not something you're to be focused on. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Again, why? Why are we to be fixated seers gazing upon the invisible realm? 
For one thing, the visible things understood properly are sacraments, right? So you might say, well, my marriage is very concrete and physical, and I have to focus on that. Yeah, but it's a sacrament that points beyond itself. And if, you're, if your affections and thoughts terminate in the marriage, you're an idolater. And we could do this with all kinds of good things. Same thing with the created order. You could study and enjoy and rejoice in the splendor of the created order. But if that's where your seeing terminates, you're also an idolater. The things that are seen, remember Psalm 102 about the whole created order. It shall be rolled up like a garment and perish. They're transient. Here's another one of these Puritan prayers from the Valley of Vision. I wanted to read you a portion of it where, they, where the prayer goes like this. <laughs> before the Lord, all the nations are as nothing before thee. One generation succeeds another, and we hasten back to the dust. The heavens we behold will vanish away like the clouds that cover them. The earth we tread on will dissolve as a morning dream. But thou, unchangeable and incorruptible, art forever and ever, God over all, blessed eternally. Now I'm aware that this can be somewhat disheartening. Because we're so used to placing value in these other things. But there's a kind of discouragement that comes with this that a person has to work through to get on the other side of it to a kind of detached holy joy. I would argue you can't even use created things or the things of the creation rightly until one has suffered this displacement. But the displacement is going to cause emotional trauma. If the very earth that you tread on is going to dissolve and vanish before the eternal God, well, that's going to cause some relativization of the things our our affections are set on. And that's going to be somewhat difficult for us. The things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. The unseen God is eternal. The unseen heavenly realm where Jesus Christ is, is eternal. And we are to look to the things that are eternal, not in addition to temporal things, but rather than temporal things, Paul says. So here's here's a Puritan pastor, Richard Baxter. Some of you know who Richard Baxter is. He wrote a famous book called The Reformed Pastor. He's talking about the eternality of God. And and he says this. This is his pastoral advice or his application on on the matter. As all things will presently be swallowed up in eternity, so I think the present apprehension of eternity should now swallow up all other things in the soul. Well, that's the eternality of God being a little too concrete. The present apprehension of eternity should swallow everything else up. Right? Paul says much the same thing in Colossians 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Set your affections there. Right? We live raised up with Christ in the realm not of things temporal, but in the realm of the eternal. Now, this will be and shall be a sheer delight for us, and should be a sheer delight for us now. I think of C.S. Lewis, who, uh, speaking along these lines, says, we're half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink, he says, and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us. 
We're like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. Like, we don't really want this eternal perspective. We're happy with a kind of Christianized temporal perspective. We're far too easily pleased, Lewis says, because we don't believe this infinite eternal joy is really infinite eternal joy. But it is your destiny to glorify and enjoy God forever. And embracing this perspective, eternal and heavenly, it's a way for the gladness to begin now. Right? This is a prescription for gladness. This displacement leads to joy. The psalmist says in Psalm 16, he says, In God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, where Christ is, right? Where your affections are, where you've been raised up at the right hand of God, there are pleasures forevermore, eternal pleasures. Eternal pleasures flowing from the eternal God to creatures in full possession of eternal life. Eternal glory be to God. Amen.